this is Jeff from Startup Sack with another episode of the Sacramento Startups Podcast. Last week, we hosted another Startup Sack happy hour where our featured guest for this founder AMA was Home Zotico founder Elizabeth Dodson. We captured that AMA again and pick it up with Elizabeth introducing herself. Take a listen. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate this, and thank you for the, the team at Startup Sack. It, I will reiterate what Laura said. If you have not subscribed to the Startup Digest, I highly recommend it because it's great information, and you will know what's going on in town with startups. Um, so about me a little bit, so which I don't always like doing, but uh, Beth Dodson. So Beth Dodson um, is originally from the East Coast, and I came here to work for a very young startup, and that startup was called Meridian Systems. Meridian Systems was the world's leading commercial construction project management software company. Bit of a mouthful, but if you think about all the major buildings around the world, they used our software to manage the construction process of those buildings. And for instance, Golden One Center, the airport, the GSA building downtown all used our product the Meridian product, to actually manage those buildings, among all the other stadiums in the country, the largest buildings in the world, etc. So my role there has always been in marketing and business development and sales, which I love tremendously. And um, I was fortunate because I was an early stage employee there, so I was roughly employee number 20, and that's a good place to be. And then we grew that company, took late stage funding, so we took basically a Series B of $14 million. We sold that company in 2006 to an organization called Trimble, and they since have acquired a lot of other software companies in the construction space, very specific, very niche, um, because that's what they're focused on. And uh, we stayed with that company. My team at Hamzada and I stayed with that company because we'd all worked together for four years after the sale. And then it was time to do it again. And so uh, during the process at Meridian, because you're managing all these buildings, I actually um, came up with this idea. And I was like, I don't understand why I can manage the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, which is a billion-dollar project, and I cannot manage my house. So my personal need, my personal frustration, I had documents all over my house. I didn't know when I needed to change my air filters in my house. And yes, you need to change them. (laughs) And I was having equipment break, you name it, things were happening. I was like, I'm traveling all the time. I'm working all the time. There's got to be a better way. So lo and behold, my teammates that I used to work with, David, um, different David than was in the original uh, Meridian team, but David and John, we all all worked together said, let's start Hamzada. But we didn't know what it was called at the time. It was just Project Kucha. <laughs> That's all it was, Kucha. And in Croatian, Kucha is house. So we're like, we don't know what it's going to be. So we decided to do our investigation. We realized that there was nothing else on the market. Um, we knew that there was a large opportunity because it's broad-based. It goes across all homeowners in the United States. In fact, we knew that there was a long-term opportunity for homeowners around the world. And we wanted a long-term viable product that we could support and offer services to a variety of customers. So, as it turns out, we built Homzada back in 2011. We've been on the market for several years. We have tens and tens of thousands of customers all over the United States. In fact, 15% of our market share is outside the United States, and we do not market outside the United States. So, very exciting. We are focused on one area because there's 120 million homeowners in the U.S. alone. That's a big market. So we go, we're a B2C consumer platform that offers all these things about managing your home. 
And what we manage is a home inventory. So you think about the fires in Santa Rosa, the mudslides, the hurricanes. All of those individuals are now wishing if they already didn't have a home inventory because they've got a file for uh, their insurance policies. Maintenance. You never forget when to change your air filter again among everything else you need to do to manage your house because it's so complex. The system will alert you as to when you can do that and it builds a calendar for you. Then we've also got projects. goes back to our project management background. Most projects in the United States are over budget. So we build templates to help people not be over budget. Super easy to keep them on track. And then there's a financial component so you know what the valuation of your house is, when your mortgage is getting paid off, whether you're properly insured and your monthly expenses. And when you're ready to sell your house, you take a subset of that data and you transfer it to the new buyer, buyer so it becomes Carfax for the house. Super exciting. So big market, both nationally and globally. It's a multi-multi-billion dollar market. However, we also have a professional version. So we also go B2B because we can sell our product to um, insurance companies, real estate companies, um, mortgage companies, as well as retail companies that service the homeowner. And that's a long sorted story on how that works for them, but there's a variety of ways that works depending on the business and the partnership that we arrange. We took early stage funding for um, Homzada. Part of that was founder money because we had done well with the Meridian sale, as well as um, a seed round of small angel investors, one of which was Moneta here in town, which is also a sponsor of uh, Startup Sack. And um, it was a $2.3 million seed round. And then now we're going after our Series A, as well as continuing to grow and scale our company. What are the questions? Open Absolutely. it up for your questions. Certainly. What's your name first? Paul. Paul, nice to meet you. Great to meet you too, Beth. Thanks for a nice talk and congratulations on your great success. Thanks. Uh, quick question as a uh, co-founder, how did you do the equity split between your co-founders? Did you use one of the online calculators? Did you just do even Steven? Was there a long discussion? How did you do it? And what did you end up with? Okay, so the question is, as a co-founder, how do you, I'm gonna repeat all the questions just so everybody knows. So the question is, as a co-founder, what is the equity split among co-founders? So first of all, that's between me and my co-founders, just FYI. Second of all, it isn't always equal for a lot of reasons. There were um, two of the co-founders put in more dollars than probably another, and then one of the co-founders came up with the idea and did some pre-work beforehand. So. This, the equity is not even, however, it is fair because one of the things you have to consider is when you have partners that don't have equal equity, you have to still keep people motivated. So that's the big key there. So, and the way we did it is um, we didn't use online tools just because that was part of the question. What? How do we come to that arrangement? We built our own... Um, cap table tool. So we built it ourselves and it's something we had used at Meridian. So it's this complicated Excel spreadsheet that we built. And basically that's how we plugged in all the numbers and did our evaluation because we had to look at not only the co-founders shares, but we also looked at it long-term. We knew that we would need funding and multiple uh, rounds. So we actually was able to play with those numbers as we continued to grow. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you for the question, Paul. Next, anyone? Other questions? Go ahead. Uh, 
So it was not pre-revenue. We do have revenue. And um, I'm not going to tell you what the valuation is online. <laughs> but we do have a valuation number that we have um, discussed because we had to um, provide it because we convert, we use our uh, seed round as a convertible note. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's a whole lot of questions in that one too. But next. Other no, questions? No questions? Come on. I have another Certainly. Come on, Mark. Yeah, perfect question. So the question from Omar was, how are we scaling the business? So a variety of ways. So one, we realized what works with our B2C customers. So the ultimate ultimate goal is the end user. So not all homeowners are going to be early adopters. That's just a reality check. So you have to manage through what we refer to as crossing the chasm. Has everyone read that book by Jeffrey Moore? If you haven't, I highly recommend it because it talks about the process of where your startup will go through. So just that's a free tidbit. But um, as we scale, so the first thing was B2C. So we know what works with B2C. Specific forms of digital marketing work for B2C. So pay-per-click, um, organic key search, making sure we're getting content out there that is relevant to what we do. Social media, social media ads, um, even PR for us is very important. So um, a good example of that is we were recently mentioned on MSN. And it drove a ton of traffic to our site and a lot of signups as well. So valued content from valued sources plays a big role. The second area of where we're growing our company is through the partners. So as I indicated earlier, we form relationships with insurance, mortgage, retail, real estate, etc. Organizations that touch the homeowner. And as you can imagine, there's tons of them because the homeowner market is extremely big and it's very decentralized and segmented. So those organizations have the ability to introduce our solution to their millions of customers or they can actually buy it for their customers. So both models work depending on what the partner and us agree to and what arrangement they're looking for. So that's big scale. So, I'm sorry? So we have a decent amount of people. We do. We have a lot of people supporting the product, but it's not as difficult as you think because we've made it really intuitive and we see how our users use the product. And you can tell when users get stuck in a product. So another tidbit for people in the room, if you haven't used a product like Full Story, Full Story is a product that enables you to watch how users are navigating through the system and where they get stuck. So it enables us to make product enhancements. We also take in tech support calls as well as live chat and et cetera, where once you start seeing trends in, in um, requests and or situations, where they're running into challenges, you make modifications. And then on top of that, because our product is self-service, we have a ton of videos that help them navigate and find what they're looking for. This is so cool. Okay. Yeah. So the question is, how did we develop the product and what were the technical challenges? And then... What are our challenges moving forward? So that is an actual great question because many of you may or may not have been familiar with version one of Homezada. 
version one of Hamzada, um, personally, I loved, I still love, but version one had a lot of missteps. There were parts and pieces in the product that our users just weren't finding valuable, so we had to remove them. There were parts and pieces that just weren't easily navigated. Uh, the look and feel needed a brand new refresh, and we had an app and a desktop version that were not cohesive and not similar. That was probably one of our biggest challenges because what we found through um, realizing how our users use the system, our users actually use their mobile app and their desktop within the same hour of our product. So we had to have a consistent look and feel and experience for our customers because it, they were just using them interchangeably. And so that doesn't always happen in a lot of um, platforms, but in ours it did. So version one, albeit it was great, we needed to do a complete refresh and makeover of Hamzada. And in 2014, I believe, yes, 2014, we did a whole new refresh. And we did it through not only the desktop, but all the mobile apps, etc. And we made it more user-friendly and we worked with, which I also love, our users are right down the middle, men and women, all different generations, every state in the country, 20 countries outside the United States. So we had to cater to all those different nuances, which makes my job in marketing very difficult because there's no one niche that's an early adopter. It's across the board. So we worked with a user design and user experience organization, which I loved, here in Sacramento, that had a male and female co-founder which was very important because our user base is equally down the middle, male and female. And it was great because watching their discussions of what they perceived would work better than the other really helped us in our particular product. So that was something we consciously did, is found, interviewed a different bunch of different UI UX designers and realized that this um, team was gonna be the best because they had males and females on board. So that was really important to us. So those are the challenges we faced in the past. Um, our development team technically is one of my co-founders with a variety of other staff members. He actually is based in Vancouver, British Columbia. So everything's remote. No, not all of it's in-house. Some of it is outsourced. But he is the lead developer, and he manages all the different individuals that we work with, and he does it remotely. And so we use tools like Jira and others to stay on top of what we're doing and how we want to design the product and constantly coming up with edits based on tech support and requests. The other thing uh, that we do, we see challenges in the future, is um, our biggest challenge right now is we need the next round of funding to scale the product and to constantly add more value because, how do I say this? We probably have a 10-year roadmap, and it's not fast enough for the team. Like, we want more in the product, and we have to be careful not to put too much in too early because maybe the technology isn't there yet that we can adopt. Maybe um, the partners that we're working with, their technology is a little bit lagging just yet. It'll get better in a couple of years and sometimes better to wait. And then at the same time, do our users really need this to make 
a difference in what they're using or can we wait a little bit? So if we did everything today, we might actually end up spending too much money too soon for what the users don't really need right now. So it's a balance of how much you add to the product, when the technology will be updated, because then remember, you got to constantly update that in your own product and it's an ongoing issue and so we take that into consideration every time we evaluate development decisions is what does it mean today what will it mean in the next few um, months and then what will it mean in the next few years because there's always maintenance of product Tony had a question wait Tony the question unfortunately I have two part questions what is what exactly is the business model Mm-hmm. And then the second one has to do with privacy, fearing um, that the Facebook wouldn't, yes. the director or the head guy wouldn't uh, reveal what hotel he was at last night. I'm assuming that the information may have uh, value. They have value to someone other than. I question that you're saying. You know, someone outside. Okay, so the question is the, the question is business model and privacy policies. Great question. So business model is a couple different things. So one, we have a subscription model on the consumers. So it's a freemium model. Inventory is free. Everything else is $59 a year. The second model is a transaction-based model. So professionals can sign up today and actually buy Hamzada for a one-time fee and then give them give their customers the gift of Hamzada. They can do that today. And then the third model, um, which is built but doesn't exist in its entirety yet, is advertising models. So um, think about when you're a user and you're trying to build a kitchen remodel, do you want to see bathroom faucets or do you want to see kitchen faucets? So we can bring forth relevant data at the time in which you need it, not before, not after. That's what's valuable about our advertising model. But it's not available yet in its entirety. It's only being offered to our strategic partners at this point. The second question you asked was um, uh, privacy policy. So I am loving life right now because all of our user data is belongs to our users. We do not touch it. We do not sell it. We do nothing with it. And our privacy policies are very clear with that. And the reason we do that is because think of the contents that are in your home. They are very expensive. If we make that public data, then everyone's just going to get robbed. So that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for people to help protect themselves in case of an emergency. So everything is private, secure, and we do nothing with that data. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thanks. Hmm? Um, Laura? So I had a question. Um, so are you using a product like Zendesk or something like that, or are you doing your own uh, chat bots and customer service, that sort of thing? Great question. So um, Laura was talking about customer service, and we, do, we use our own systems and customer service. So we document them in a variety of our own solutions, but we also understand where there's issues. So when there needs to be a bug fix and we understand when it happens, what it is, is it gonna occur again? So to make sure we can 
fix it really quickly. We also look at um, not only customer support questions, but we also look at our own updates. Because because of the third parties that we work with, whether it's apps, or, you know, iOSs and everything else, we need to make sure that we're constantly updating all of our platforms. And we spend about twice a year on doing nothing but making sure all of our updates are current and focused. And we literally focus all of our attention on all those updates and no other new development is being added to the system at that time because it's really important. And then we continually document all of our customer issues. We also document our enhancements because that is not technically an issue, but we start seeing trends on what customers are looking for. And it helps us identify where we want to continue to build out in the future and what's more urgent than what isn't. So it gives us the ability to figure out what our customers want. Question. How do you uh, prototype and test your releases before you go live? Perfect question. So how do you prototype and test your releases before they go live? So we do a couple different things. So first of all, we have a staging environment where it's not exposed to the public yet. And we do a lot of internal testing ourselves, which is the first step. And so as you can imagine, when you're talking about a homeowner, there isn't one home that is exactly the same in the country. Different people live in it. They have different, you know, habits. They have different things, different products in it. So we have to take a look at every possible use case scenario available, and we test and test and test and test. We also have to look at um, not only use case scenarios for our consumers, but also for our partners. So what is the impact to the partners as well? So how do we bridge that and make sure that we're testing that thoroughly? And then we also document it in our systems where my technical team manages all that detail. I do not, thank goodness. And oftentimes they will ask me to test certain things, and I will. But then I don't know what's new sometimes. So I'm like, is it supposed to work this way? Like I use Hamza heavily, but I'm like, well, it's, I think it's supposed to work this way. And so they will usually um, watch me test just as a user with no visibility of what they've added, which sometimes is a good thing because you can watch the user maneuver. And if I start getting stuck on something for someone who knows the product, then definitely we have to make some adjustments. But yeah, constantly. Which also comes into play. When you're talking about testing, that question's a good one too. When you're in the form of development, you always have to remember that whatever new features you add, you have to extend your testing cycle before you do a new launch. So that's always important. And most people don't understand that. Oh, yeah, you can just keep building more product. <laughs> but you got to test for it. So it's constant. I have a question. I have a question. Um, can you speak to, you mentioned you do have folks that are Remote, but I wanted to ask you about some of the advantages and disadvantages of being located in Sacramento. Okay. In terms of the workforce. Okay. So the question was, <clears throat> excuse me, got a tickle my throat. The um, working remote and, and the um, the workforce in Sacramento. So. Um, I've had the good fondness of already operating and running a company in Sacramento. So that's already a positive. So there is a lot of talent in Sacramento. Now, you also have to weigh the options of running your company. So, for instance, with Meridian, as well as Homesada, um, but primarily Meridian, when you are selling companies all over the world, sometimes it doesn't 
it's not cost effective to have all your sales reps and consultants in Sacramento. Sometimes it's actually more effective if you've got East Coast reps, Midwest reps, international folks, because they can get to those locations faster and cheaper. Because if you're flying somebody from Sacramento all the time to New York, and you've got a customer and you're doing this weekly, that's just a waste of money. So find somebody on the East Coast to actually service that customer in that territory is more effective and then they can service more than just that customer, they can service an entire region. So keep that in mind when you're building um, companies. But we also have found a lot of great development talent. I will say in the early days of Meridian, which was dating myself, 1996, um, that was a long time ago, there weren't a lot of development talent here. It just didn't exist. But now there is. You can find a lot of resources. There's a lot of development talent at the schools. There's a lot of development talent that are doing outsource work if you don't want to bring them on board as full-time employees. There's all kinds of situations that you can engage in. In fact, we, bless you, we have found most of our um, development contractors in town at startup grind type activities and startups and startup sack type activities. The big summer parties that startup grind hosts, we found a lot of our talent there. So it pays to go to those events. It pays to network, it pays to talk to everybody. So that talent does exist. And you just have to figure out what you're looking for. Is it development talent? Is it sales talent? Is it marketing talent? data science talent, that's what you have to find. And they are here. And there's a lot of people that live here that commute to the Bay Area and they don't want to do it anymore. So there's a ton of people that would be willing to work in Sacramento and help grow a really big company. Look, as I smile, certainly. So we're about 10 people, contractors as well as staff. Yeah, we're very lean and mean and I can't, I think I emphasize this at every event. I cannot emphasize it enough. If you are starting a company, be extremely careful with your money, be extremely lean with your money, because you often have to make it last a very, very long time. Be very smart about how you use your money. And if you can hire a project-based contractor for a short period of time, then do it. If you work with a contractor and it's not working out, get rid of them. It goes for anything. If you're testing a marketing um, campaign or activity and it's not paying off, stop it. Go to something different. If you get a cheaper rate and you've got to secure a year contract with a marketing agency, you might want to say, you know what, we're a startup. Let's just do a test for three months. And then if we want to get to a year contract, we'll do it after that point. So we just look at this very carefully and you just never know what kind of relationship you're going to get into, so it's best to test it. And you never know what your company needs, right? What kind of marketing will resonate with your types of customers and what won't. So that's all I recommend. Do you have any issues or concerns The question is about protecting intellectual property, especially if you have subcontractors. So we do not mean, and a couple of different reasons is, um, 
one, we do ask our contractors to sign NDAs and non-competes and confidentiality agreements, so that does exist. And we have contracts where we own the output that they create. So it's part of our contracts. We just we own the output. Um, so that's the first thing, contracting vehicles to make sure we protect it. The second thing is, what we're doing is not rocket science. It's complicated, but it's not rocket science. And so, and even rocket scientists, there's com there's competitors. So, if there's a competitor, it actually can help our business. So that's also a positive. Keeping that in mind, competitors aren't always a bad thing. That's the first thing. That's one thing. And then the other thing is, we know that there are a lot of companies that want to do what we do, and there are, some of them are trying to go off and build it. And I just remind them, I know how much it costs. I've already got it built. Do you want to go to market today, or do you want to wait to go to market? And so once we have that discussion, that's when the negotiations start and people want to partner with us. So I love negotiations. Anyway, it's quiet. Oh, okay, Laura. So um, what year did you launch your website? And then I have a follow-up question to that. Okay, she can do it. You launched as a website in like... 2012. And then you um, then wanted to go mobile. Yes. Would you have done that differently at all, knowing what you know now about how popular <laughs> apps and mobile are? Would you have gone mobile first? So, that is a date. So, the question is, knowing what I know today, would I have gone mobile and website at the same time in um, when we first launched in 2012? Or so, mobile first. Or mobile first. So, dangerous question because my co-founders will probably disagree with me, but I I would have wanted to do what we did in 2014 when we did the update, to have both at the same time. So when you're building a product like Hamzada, as I told you all the things that are in it, there's a lot of nuances beyond just what I told you high level. So that type of product, we honestly thought was gonna be for a desktop user because there's just a lot to do and it's hard to see on your phone all that information. So that's part of the reason why we did it desktop first. However, knowing what I know today, I would have had a more consistent web, excuse me, more consistent web user interface and a mobile user interface like we had in 2014. And I think I said it then, but I didn't know what I was saying. And one of the things I had said, and it's just me personally, I am not a fan of most mobile apps. And the reason I'm not is because I think they aren't consistent or they aren't good enough. I'm just gonna say it. I just think that they're lacking in, in some features. And oftentimes that's at the, um, that's why companies build it, they do that intentionally. But when we launched Tomzada and it was consistent, I was over the moon. I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. And that's what I look for now in all apps. When I want a mobile app, if it's not, I get it off my phone. It's so funny when you build it yourself, how much you look at other apps and figure out what you want and what you deserve. So I say that. So my co-founders would probably say, no, they would still do what we did originally. But I would have probably said, if I'd known what I was saying at the time, I would have pushed the envelope and said, we need to relook this. We need to relook this and build it at the same time. But 
you don't know what you know. And when 2012 was out, responsive design wasn't that popular. It was still very early on and nobody knew where it was going. But that was in 18 months, that shifted. So that's how fast technology is shifting. <laughs> Jeff. We've talked about how important mentorship was yeah. So um, the question is, mentorship advisors and how important that is to us vary. So um, the, the first area where we got a lot of mentorship, believe it or not, is our attorneys. So Homesada uses the same attorneys we used when we were at Meridian. And we had a lot of valuable feedback during our days with Meridian as well as with Homesada. So they explained to us the new market of investment because remember Meridian didn't have to take early stage money because we were we were bootstrapped and we grew through physical profits. So the early stage capital structure, they helped us understand that. They also helped us understand um, what the investment market looked like because we hadn't done it in so many years. We didn't know what it was like anymore. So they gave us a lot of feedback there. That's the first thing. The second thing that we looked at is um, a lot of our team at Homesada had been on a variety of boards. So um, my co-founder, David, was the CTO of Meridian. He also was on the Microsoft Advisory Board for .NET because we were an early adopter of .NET. So he still had a lot of contacts with those individuals on that board. And so he could still reach out to a lot of those different individuals, both at Microsoft and the advisory team to get more feedback of where development was going and where it was after that. And that also is re the reason why we didn't build the Homesada stack on .NET. Even though we were experienced with it, we went with a more open sourced program, which was Ruby on Rails. Easier to, to get up out to market faster, easier to build on, and that's through relationships, just having those discussions. And then also, um, John and I went out to a lot of different industries. I mean, we're talking to real estate, we're talking to insurance. These are industries we don't come from. So we connected with a lot of our friends saying, who knows who in what industry, so that we can get some more experience and more feedback, so that we know how to talk to these industries. In addition to, the three of us are um, very fortunate. We are information junkies. Like, we love to research whatever we can, and we read a ton. We have a lot of conversations. We share with each other what we've learned for what. We look at potholes and pitfalls that could occur if we build something. We have a lot of what we refer to as healthy conflict in our company because if we don't agree, we need to hash it out and we need to come up with a lot of different options in order to make the best decision for the business. And that takes into account mentorship, advising, all of that because sometimes your mentors and your advisors don't have all the answers either but and you have to take everything within context so that's what we like to do and we talk to all kinds of people even our investors that we have in Hamzada, they know a contact at this financial institution and they will educate us on what the financial institution looks like and they will walk us in the door so we get a lot of that as well in terms of advising and mentoring mentoring 
Are you having a challenge raising money? I mean, uh, we took that it sounds like a great model, it's a figure of a pretty mean, mean, mean. You know, if you're already generating revenue, uh, funding should be a relative mean. So, <laughs> relatively <No>. easy. <laughs> so the question was about funding and raising funding. So it's not necessarily easy. It is tough. You've got to tell your story. You've got to keep growing it. Yes. And what we found is the people that really like our story are the corporate ventures. So the traditional equity ventures at the Series A level, they like it, but they don't love it. What's funny is the Series B and C, they're calling us all the time. So that's an option. We could always skip and get a bigger round, give up more shares of the company. That's always an option. And then the other option is we, with some of these deals, and I think we're kind of hedging our bets. It's like, you know, playing poker sometimes, right? It's what it is. We're hedging our bets. And we have a lot of large enterprise deals in the pipeline right now. And if they close... We don't need the next round of funding. And I, I don't mean to sound arrogant. It's just, it literally is. We won't need it as soon as we need something else because we'll have these. And we may be able to go back to skipping a series A. You never know. So that's why I say be lean and mean. If I remember venture capital rules, well, uh, series A, so the question is, it sounds like we're a series, we're a company looking for a series A, but should be looking for a series B. So it's all relative, yeah. right? It's all relative in how you look at the deal. So we look at it from a lot of different scenarios. One, who the investors are, because you're basically getting married again, yep. right? Because I'm already married, so I'm getting married again. And then two, we also look at um, what the what the investor's gonna bring to the table. You know, how many shares they're gonna get for what X number of dollars, and then what kind of controls there are, because a lot of people are like, um, it's something you don't want to give up control, but you do have a path for the way you want to build your company. And oftentimes investors don't understand that. They're just about, most of them, they're like, I have a goal. I want to make money. And I've been in that situation before. And sometimes they will try to force your hand to sell at any cost. The fastest to get out the door. And that's not what we're looking for. We are looking to grow a large company with Hamzada. The other thing that we look at is um, these corporate ventures because they're really interested. And that whole model is a little bit different. They bring to the table... Um, not only the funds that they have from their venture arm, but generally there has to be a tie-in to a business case scenario within the organization. So basically what we have to do there is we have to coordinate two deals almost simultaneously, and that's kind of what we're, we're doing as well with the business unit as well as the corporate venture side. So everyone's doing their due diligence at the same time, closing these deals, which in the enterprise world takes a long time. So we've kind of got all kinds of things going on. So, so, if, you got, so if you got one of these investors that theoretically is a Series B investor, you got the right kind of a deal. They can call it any letter they want, and you take that right. 
Well, I mean, it's easy for me to say I would take any deal on record, but to be perfectly honest, obviously all the parts and pieces have to be fair for everybody, or at least in the best interest for everybody. Correct. It's all another option. There's a lot of options. So, when you first came up with the Homes idea, you said there was nobody else doing it. That's been six years or so. Yep. Do you have competitors now? Great question. Laura goes, um, Laura asks, are, are there competitors with Homesada? So, yes and no. So, these questions are always, it depends, right? It's always one of those things that I don't always like asking, but it depends. So, yes, there is. So, a lot of homeowners do nothing, right? They, they do nothing. That's one of our competitors, do nothing. Another competitor is one-off situations. So someone may have a home inventory app, and then someone may have um, their own calendar. Someone may have Dropbox for photographs. Someone may have nothing for projects or an Excel spreadsheet, but everything's disparate. And nothing is centrally located, nothing's tied to each other. And one of the reasons why we build Hamzada tied to each other is because you have inventory items, equipment, appliances, etc. They need to be maintained. They need to be replaced as a project, and then they need to come back around as a new inventory item, and that's what our product actually does. And so bringing it all together is what the value is long-term because we believe the philosophy will, will soon hit that consumers are going to get app exhausted. They got too many logs in for too many things for the same item, which is, you know, like a house. It's complicated. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, do we have someone that does everything we do? No. Do they maybe do parts and pieces? Yes. And so there are players out there. They're still growing and young. And then there are also players who... Um, large organizations who have tried to offer one component, let's say like a bunch of insurance companies that tried to offer a home inventory app. How do I say this? But a lot of them don't understand how to build or market software. They know how to sell insurance. And there's a big difference. And so they build these apps and then they're not getting adoption because they just put it on a website and they think, build it and they will come. The Field of Dreams model, for anyone who hasn't seen it, does not work. It does not. Watch the movie if you don't know what it is. But it doesn't work. So we do have competitors, just they don't do everything we do. Right, which also causes challenges because if there were, not that I necessarily want one, but if there was one, it would help to educate the market even more. Mm -hmm. So how much of your marketing is basically explaining the value proposition? So the question is how much of our marketing is to explain the value proposition? There is um, a lot of our marketing that explains the value proposition and what that looks like. And one of the things that we also have to take a look at, which makes my life a little bit challenging, remember I told you earlier we have both genders, all age groups, all 50 states, all seasons, all types of houses, condos, this, that, the other, um, all income levels. It's all over the map. So we have to find ways to address them, and we have to address them uniquely. So we have to send different messages to different folks based on where they live, based on the time of the year, based on their gender, based on their age group. 
And so it's a constant communication on that. However, a lot of our partners that we partner with have a more trusted environment. So I'll give you one example. We partnered with a radio station in Arizona. It's one of the world. It's one of the country's largest um, home improvement radio station. They've been around for 30 years, and they talk about Homezada, and they get people to our site and they sign up immediately. Like there's no 10 to 20 touches. It's we trust them. We want to use this. We totally see value. Boom, we're in. So it's finding more of those partners as well to help with that messaging because they've already built the trusted relationship with their customers. Totally influence marketing. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of that going on. We have all these markets that are just paying themselves to then and you know, go on to this day, focus on one area. So that's what we're trying to go after all these different those. That's correct. That's and like dispersing your <laughs> So the question is spreading yourself too thin. Yes. That's <laughs> what so we do. And so we do focus on two key markets. So um, at the because at the enterprise level, these deals take a really long time. So we only focus on insurance and mortgage. And when other things come up, we're like, okay, we'll entertain the opportunity just for about a minute, but we'll qualify in and qualify out really quickly. And for people who don't who haven't been in sales before, qualifying out is equally or if not more important than qualifying in. If the deal is not going to work for you, get rid of it quickly so you don't waste all your time. And I hope that I do that even when people call me sometimes. I'm like, hey, I'm willing to hear this, but I'm just telling you we don't have the money or we can't do it right now. And so I'll push people off just because I don't want to keep people dragging on and on because I hate that when people do that to me. So we focus on those industries. However, when these one-offs do show up, like this radio station, it was such a simple situation. I'm like, well, of course I'm going to sign them up because it was just not that difficult. And I was like, all right, fine. And then they literally talk about us every week on the radio station. I'm like, score. So it works. I found them and I pitched them, ironically enough. So keep your options open. I pitched them on a PR opportunity, not on a uh, influencer marketing opportunity. I pitched them, hey, can I get on your radio station and talk about my product? I mean, at, if you don't ask, no one's going to be able to say no to you, right? It's like, take the shot. So that's the first thing. But then they started thinking about what we offered and they like ignored me for a month. Yes, Romy, I'm talking about you. <laughs> they ignored me for a month and then they called me back and said, I was going to build what you have. I'm like, well, I have it. So let's partner. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This PR deal is turning into something so much bigger. And it's a win-win-win for everybody. So that's what we decided to do. So that unique opportunity ended up being way bigger. So we said, okay, we can turn this around. And we turned it around quickly, within three months. So yeah. Hi, Hi Kaylee. Hi, Kaylee. you're going to laugh what I tell you. So Kaylee's question is, um, what, when was there a time when our team had to regroup 
and um, come back together and come back around because I guess everything hit the fan. So remember what I said earlier, we believe in healthy conflict in our company. And we believe in it because sometimes people have to get it out of their system to come to an end result. So um, I got so many situations. I mean, so many. <laughs> so um, I think I have to be forthright about one thing. So I just want to be forthright. So one of my co-founders is also my husband. So that also adds another dynamic of complexity, okay? So um, I think one of the things that happens is when we don't agree on what the next um, set of features and or enhancements need to be added to the product. When the three of us don't agree, we all have to sit down and whiteboards come out. And we have giant whiteboards that are double-sided. You flip them over, and they are standing in the middle of the room. So those are situations when everyone gets really frustrated because everything's a great idea, but then you have to prioritize. And we look at the prioritizations of all the different scenarios. We look at, okay, what's the development work? Okay, who's requesting it? How many requests we're getting? Okay, what strategically is of value is this going to provide us? Is this going to secure us more customers? Is this going to secure us more partners? Is this going to be able to... Is this marketable? So all of those things come into play, and we literally whiteboard it with a list. Okay, marketability, um, more customers, more professionals, more this, more this. And we start voting, and we start looking at all the different feature sets and which ones have the most check marks. And usually, we let the whiteboard speak for itself. Because once you let... Everybody innately has, do I think this is the I think this is it? Because their intuition is taking over, which is a good thing. I think this is it, I think this is it. But when you let the whiteboard and checks do the talking, you can take a step back, relax, and say, okay, do we agree with what the check marks are saying? Yes, no, what are the pros and cons? And we and it becomes a discussion and it's no longer I feel this or this is this. This is Okay, our intuition isn't speaking, but this is what the result is saying. So it's almost like contracts. So coming from the commercial construction um, area, what people do in commercial, they manage to contracts. So it takes the emotion out of a lot of it. It's managing the contracts. So when you look at a whiteboard, you manage to a visual representation of a discussion. So. Well, and it and when it comes to the whiteboard, so the the conversation was about three versus four. When it comes to the whiteboard, it doesn't matter how many people you have. The checks on the whiteboard is basically the fourth or the fifth person. So just consider your whiteboard a person. It sounds really strange, but it basically everyone else has to take step back, and the whiteboard wins. If there, there's everyone else is a, the whiteboard is always the winner. Whiteboard, whiteboard management. I have a question. Sure. Uh, when it comes to implementing new technology, so tech is expensive. Salesforce, mm -hmm. data warehouse. How do you prioritize the spend? And it's mm -hmm. time for us to go that direction, or we're not ready for that. So um, the question is from who? Sierra. Sierra. Hi, Sierra. The question from Sierra is, um, how do you know when to adopt other technology for process implementation as well as development tools? So, um, 
we have experience doing this at Meridian because we'd already done this before, so it was um, secondhand to us. We kind of knew what we could survive with and what we didn't need. We knew what it, what was a, a nice to have and what was a need. And um, obviously, building our product on development stacks, making sure we're, we have um, AWS and Heroku and some other systems to make sure the product works, that is the first and foremost thing that we made investments in. When it comes to Salesforce and all these other things, Jira and stuff, those are add-ons that even though they improve processes within your organization, they're still a nice to have because there's always a workaround to get it done. So we prioritize it in that fashion. We also prioritize it with the number of people that may need it. So maybe not all of our team, the 10 people need it, but maybe only one person needs it. And we look at alternatives. Is there a free version for a startup um, player out there? Because most of these companies do have startup programs. You may just have to ask for it because they don't advertise it. And that has happened on many occasions. When it came to marketing for us, we worked with a PR firm. They were dirty. I couldn't believe it because they had a startup price. And all you had to do was ask. And so um, that was, that's sometimes how you figure out how you want to implement. And then if you start running into challenges, so let's say you brought up Salesforce and you have all these deals, the value of Salesforce is that not only are you managing the humans and the companies and the sales process, you're also managing your contracts with them. So where are all the NDAs? Where are all the contracts with them? The other thing that you're also managing with Salesforce is time. So how long has it taken you to close this deal? How long has it taken you to get through this process? And what is your sales process? That's the other thing. If you don't have a sales process, why have Salesforce? So how long is it taking you to get through that? So there are value points in that, but you just have to determine is it a priority for the business? And um, in our case, it is. So, because we have a sales force. But there are other solutions where I wish we had, but we're like, you know what? These prices are really expensive for us right now. And it also takes us more work to configure them and to manage them. And we may say, not yet. And so we step away from certain solutions as well, even though we want them desperately. Because oftentimes, sometimes it's price, but sometimes it's time. How much time does it take us to actually add this and do this? And we did that. We tested a product. Um, and the time it took us to get it all working, it was just too hard. And we said, you know, we're just not going to be able to move forward with you guys because you just need some more updates. You need to step up your product a little bit better. So, certainly. Sure. Uh, can you talk about other types of debt that companies take on? Sure. So the question is about debt. So I can only give you what uh, we've done and throughout the past. So in Meridian, as I indicated, um, it was a bootstrap company. So credit cards were the biggest thing. So everybody's got credit cards and they went into personal debt. And at the time, everyone moved home with their parents. So that's what it was, right? And mom and dad were actually, this is so long ago, they were putting floppy disks and doing floppy disks for the company. So that was kind of funny. Um, so there was obviously credit card debt. And um, then there was, then the company started making money and those credit cards were paid off. But then the company had to keep growing. So now you got to pay employees and everything else. So then there were lines of credit. And then your company keeps growing. And I remember the lines of credits were on all my houses. And I'm like, okay, you know, 
50 employees in one mistake. I could lose everything. We need to get this line of credit gone. So there were lines of credit that you could secure. There's debt financing. I know there's a lot of companies in town that offer debt financing. Um, you just have to talk to them about what their models are because I know they're all different. The um, other kind of funding you get is fam friends and family funding. I mean, there's they're willing to do that. They do have to meet certain thresholds in terms of um, investor qualifications. Um, the other uh, form is convertible notes. So our seed round was convertible note, and um, we priced that and did some things, and we worked with our attorneys as well as um, our financial um, organizations to help that. And then there's also equity. So giving up equity in exchange for money, right? That happens all the time. It's... I make it sound simple. It's not simple because there's more to it than just equity. As we were talking about earlier, there's other conditions. Do they have a board seat? Do they have decision-making criteria? Um, when does that decision-making criteria happen? Do they have to approve certain purchases over a certain dollar amount? Can they do it in a timely manner? Can you do it in a timely manner? Those types of situations do occur when you start getting into that, especially if you are a first-time entrepreneur. As a first-time entrepreneur, some of these companies may put more parameters on you because they want to make sure that they get a return. And it's risky loaning money, giving money to somebody who's not done this before. Um, I'm trying to think. Additional convertible notes. Um, you could do lottery tickets. That's risky. You could go to Vegas. Taking on technical debt or taking on... Maybe not scaling your platform as much mm -hmm. and paying for it later. Or not developing it some along the way and having more so uh, growth debt. So, okay, so I think I know what you're talking about, but you may need to go talk to um, some financial, some banks. But one of the things that you can do too is you can take on debt. Um, you can take out debt just for a piece of your business. So what you're saying is technical debt. You can take on a you can take on some debt. Uh, technical debt maybe like delay a Salesforce implementation six mm -hmm. months or going uh, with a open source uh, warehouse and then having no legal migration to Oh, I see what you're saying. Um yeah. So it does have a mod. Yeah, it's um this is a hard one. Okay, so there's no right answer to this one. So I'll give you another example. So in Homesada, we are testing um, Amazon's uh, photo recognition software. Okay, so facial recognition software, people have got down pat. It's very unique. However, item recognition is not. It's very difficult, which is why we're testing it in the product, but we kind of hide it because it's not that good. But here's the other thing, going back to what you're talking about a little bit too, because there's also a marketing side of it. I have not told any of our customers that we're doing it. And the reason why I haven't is because they will think that this is Homesada's problem when they don't realize we're licensing technology from somebody else. And so you have to be careful what the perception is of your customers and how you actually choose to incorporate technology. Looking at your product, it all depends on um, what systems you actually need and what can you get away with for a period of time until you can grow it and then add more systems on. And that requires probably a more technical discussion with you to talk about what are you trying to accomplish and can you secure customers with a limited tech 
set of parameters and then go for the next. And as an FYI, Homzada was not built in a day. So all the features you hear in Homzada, that's years of adding one segment and another and another and another and another. And that's why how we got to where we are. So one last question for Laura. This is the wrap-up question. So, uh, top two or three things that you think every early stage founder should know, um, or tips, your okay. advice. Top two or three things that every um, startup founder should know, and this is a hard one. Um, it's going to take you longer than you think. So get prepared. It's going to take you longer than you think to really make traction. Um, it's probably going to take you um, more money than you think, which is why I keep saying keep it lean, keep it lean, keep it lean. And no, okay, so manage your, your emotions. And what I mean by that is, as a startup, many of us all know, you are up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. You go through these super, super, super big highs, and then you go to what we refer to as the depths of despair. And you just have to keep um, plugging away, and you also have to be realistic, right? If your financial situation is such that you cannot continue to go forward, then just, you, you can't. If you find a buyer that's willing to buy your product and they can take it to the next level, then do that. If you can sustain it and you are willing to, you're just gonna have to come to terms that stress is a part of your life. <laughs> but it's good stress. I, mean, I really, I really, really believe that. I said, I love what I do and all the good and the bad. I love it all because if you didn't have the bad, you couldn't have the good. So it really, really is important just to keep it all in check and surround yourself with people that you can talk to. That's, a, that's probably the fourth tip. Surround yourself with people you can talk to because if you do not have a co-founder, find a group of people that you can meet with regularly, find resources that you can talk to regularly. I do have co-founders, but sometimes that doesn't work. So I also meet with other founders and businesses to go through what's going on in your businesses. And sometimes you'll hear your problems are not nearly as hard as someone else's. So surround yourself with really, really good, smart people that don't have your skill sets and then pay it forward to them. 